Our reading today will be from Matthew 5, verses 17 to 26. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever preaches and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Well, I wonder if you could take one element out of the Christian faith, what would it be? For many of us, I suspect the answer is hell, God's judgment. We're uncomfortable with judgment. And yet at the same time, we're very keen that justice is done, that some things really are wrong and really do deserve to be punished. For example, I imagine we quite like Jesus' words in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. He's quoting there the Ten Commandments and giving a fair summary of God's law. Murder leads to judgment. And we'd agree, wouldn't we? Murder is a horrific thing, violently taking the life of another human being. When there's a story on the news about a stabbing or domestic violence or a mugging, and you see the flashing blue police lights and the yellow tape and grieving relatives speaking about the one they've lost, someone's mum, someone's dad, someone's child, someone precious to God, made in his image, violently taken away. Well, how does that make you feel? Sad? Outraged? Like, it shouldn't be this way. They can't get away with it. And the Bible would say they won't. Whether they face human justice or not, they will face God's justice. Some of us know the story of Cain and Abel right from the start of the Bible. Cain says to his brother, come on, Abel, let's go out into the field. And when they're out, alone together in the field, Cain kills Abel. And he probably thought he'd got away with it. And in a world without God's judgment, 
He would have. No one sees. No one cares. But God does see. God does care. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground, God says. Murder leads to judgment. And that's good, isn't it? The Nazi war criminals of this world and the serial killers and crime bosses will face judgment. We're glad about that. But as well as being glad, there might be something else going on inside us. As we look at those murderers out there, we, we, it's just possibly we might say to ourselves, well, they deserve judgment, but I'm safe. Of course I am. It's not like I've killed anyone. But there's a twist. Look at what Jesus says in verse 21 again. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to your brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. See, Jesus is warning us, anger leads to judgment. Strong words. What do we make of them? Maybe we think, really, Jesus? I can see how murder deserves God's judgment, but anger? You know, my, my angry thoughts and feelings, the angry words from my mouth, does that really deserve judgment like murder does? Seems like overkill. And if that's our reaction, Jesus would say to us, we haven't really understood the link between murder and anger. They're much closer together than we might think. For a start, anger is often the root of murder. Dave has had a terrible week at work, and as he drives home, he's going over it all in his head. How his colleagues have treated him, his awful boss. He's already smoldering with anger. And suddenly another driver pulls out of nowhere in front of Dave, and Dave is forced to slam on the brakes. He honks the horn. His anger spikes. What an idiot. And the other driver, he has the gall to honk the horn back at Dave. How dare he? Dave thinks this guy deserves a taste of his own medicine, so Dave overtakes him. And when he's in front, he breaks. See how he likes it. But the other guy doesn't break, not, not enough. The cars collide. Dave's anger spikes again. What's this guy playing at? And soon they're out of their cars by the side of the road, and Dave would maybe let it go if the other guy apologized, but he says it's all Dave's fault, which makes Dave even angrier. And then they're yelling at each other, and they're up in each other's faces. And then there's a shove, and then a punch, and then Dave loses control. In Dave's story, anger boiled over into murder very quickly. It could be that anger stews and simmers for a long time before hitting a flashpoint. Like Lisa, who puts up with her husband's criticism and neglect and selfishness for years, until one day she snaps. Anger, then murder. That's how it was with Cain. Before he killed his brother Abel, we're told Cain was very angry. 
So when Jesus goes from murder to anger, he's taking us from the symptom to the cause, the murder or the anger in our hearts. Who knows where it could go? But here's the thing, even where our anger doesn't end up in murder, our anger is still murderous. You might not see yourself in Dave or Lisa's story, but we all experience similar anger, don't we? Losing our temper, feelings of resentment and hostility, holding a grudge, perhaps words spill out, shouting at the people we live with, you idiot, you fool, daydreaming of revenge, wanting someone out of the way, wishing they were dead. And that's why anger is so grim. I remember realizing that when I'm angry with someone, I'm saying something about them in my heart. Here's what I'm saying about them. I'm saying, at this moment, I would prefer you didn't exist. Can you relate to that? When we're angry, that's what we're saying about someone, someone made in God's image, the colleague who drives us up the wall, the person taking ages at the self-checkout, the friend who doesn't turn up when they said they would, a parent who embarrasses us. When we're angry at them, we'd rather they didn't exist. We're murdering them in our hearts. And our anger might not harm others. It might stay inside. But the idea that something's wrong only if it causes harm to other people, well, that misses something. It misses that God cares about every part of us, not just our actions on the outside, but what's happening on the inside. Our whole person matters to God. See, that command, you shall not murder, in Jesus' day, Israel's religious leaders taught that as long as you, you know, don't do the action of murdering someone, you've kept God's law. But Jesus says, come on, think about it, that completely goes against the spirit of God's law. If you just focus on some actions, you're going to end up with a, a righteousness that's only skin deep. People who avoid murderous actions, but who are full of murderous anger. Hypocrites who look moral on the outside, but rotten on the insides. God's never wanted that, Jesus says. God is after a greater righteousness. He wants his law to shape every part of us, inside and outside, wholeness, integrity. That's the spirit of the law. I remember hearing about someone who would start their day in prayer, and as they prayed, they'd go through every part of them and commit themselves to the Lord. They'd touch their ears and say, Lord, help me to listen charitably and wisely to other people. Touch their eyes and say, Lord, please help me to, to see the needs around me and to avoid looking at what's wrong. Touching his mouth, Lord, please help me today to speak truthfully, to praise you and build others up. Touching his heart, please, Lord, help me today to think and feel what's pleasing to you, and so on. It's that kind of whole person righteousness Jesus calls us to. So we need to hear Jesus' warning. Our anger might not come out as actions, 
But God sees, just like he saw Cain's murder in the field, he sees the anger in our hearts. The action of murder is a terrible thing, and I'm sure it makes the devil extremely happy. But the devil is very happy with good hypocrites who've avoided murderous actions while being full of murderous anger. There will be many non-murderers in hell. I realize all of this talk of judgment might feel full on, but Jesus is warning us because he cares about us. Imagine a child who's tempted to play on a busy road. Well, any loving parent would warn them strongly about the dangers of playing on the road. Well, Jesus wants to protect us from the peril that our anger puts us in, to say to us, wake up, wake up. Anger leads to judgment. And so how should we respond to Jesus' warning? What should we do if we realize we failed in this area? Well, I want to say that realization itself, that realization that I've been sinfully angry is very encouraging. It's true there's such a thing as good anger, the kind of anger Jesus had, anger that stays under control and that gets angry, gets angry at evil, evil against God and against other people. But the vast majority of our anger isn't like that. It rarely stays under control. And I don't usually get angry against evil. I get angry against people slighting me and ignoring me and bothering me, getting in my way. It's very easy to be blind to our sinful anger because when we're angry, we're convinced we're in the right. We have a right to be angry. They're wrong and I'm right. That deep feeling. So to realize we're not, to realize we failed in this area, we're not right, we're wrong, is a sign of God's grace to us. Thank him. It's not a small thing. And as we realize our failure and take responsibility for our sinful anger, remember Jesus' promise. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that good? Not blessed are the spiritually sorted. Blessed are those who know their place before God as sinful creatures and who depend on him for forgiveness and help. Depend on Jesus, who was never wrongly angry, whose whole person was always fully pleasing to God and who's able to change us from the inside out. And on that, can I just recommend this, this little book, a small book about a big problem by Ed Welch, Meditations on Anger. Anger is a, a long-term problem that we deal with. Well, this gives us 50 days of one thought each day from the Bible about anger and making progress with God's help. Highly recommended. How should we respond? Well, yes, Jesus would certainly have us rely on him for forgiveness. Certainly have us rely on him for that whole person righteousness. But he has more to say, and it's this. Jesus urges us, prioritize peacemaking. 
And if the idea before was that our whole person matters to God, not just murderous actions, but murderous anger, the idea here is that whole relationships matter to God. See, Jesus is showing us the spirit of God's law. And when God commands us, you shall not murder, it's not simply that he wants us to refrain from killing each other, not even that he wants us to avoid getting angry with each other. It's that he wants us to actively seek peace with one another, not just to avoid breaking, but to fix what's broken. This is what makes Jesus' teaching so wonderful and so challenging. It's not mainly about avoiding personal sin. What's that? That's about me. And it's negative, what I don't do. And if that's all Jesus' teaching was, then I could live the Christian life off isolating by myself in a cabin somewhere, not doing anything. But I can't live the Christian life like that. Because Jesus' teaching is about love. What's that? That's about other people. And it's positive what I do, how we live together as brothers and sisters. It's ambitious. Not just let's avoid murder, but how can we love each other? How can we cultivate loving relationships with our brothers and sisters? How can we in our church family so love each other that we shine like a light in the dark? That's exciting. That's the greater righteousness God is after, love. And in a church family where my anger and your anger is going to break relationships, love looks like a commitment to peacemaking, fixing, what is broken. And Jesus uses a couple of scenarios to to press that on us. Here's the first, verse 23. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Here's Jesus' point. Prioritize peacemaking over empty worship. See, in God's family, he wants his children, brothers and sisters, to be at peace. In fact, that's how we show we're his children. Look across at verse 6 if you've got your Bible open at Matthew 5. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And our Father so wants us to be at peace, he'd rather we stop worshipping him to go be reconciled to our brothers and sisters. So let's say you're in church and you're about to take the bread and wine in communion, or you're ready to put your money on the collection plate, or you're in the middle of listening to a sermon. And in that moment, you realize that another Christian has a problem with you. Well, God would prefer that you leave the bread and wine, put away your wallet, stop listening to the sermon and close your Bible, and go be reconciled to them before resuming worship. And if not, if we press on with our worship instead of first making peace with our brother or sister, well, it might look more godly 
taking the bread and wine, offering our gift, listening to the sermon. But it's empty. God doesn't want it. He wants us first to seek peace with each other. So I have a very direct application for us. If you're aware of another Christian and there's a problem between the two of you, then press pause on our worship right now and go make peace with them. Right now, is there anyone you need to do that with? They could be sitting right next to you. If there is, press pause and go try to patch things up with them. Don't get bogged down in whose job it is to make the first move. In Jesus' scenario, it's, it's unclear exactly what's happened. Is it that I angrily insulted them and they're holding that against me? Is it that, you know, they took offense at something innocent I said? Do they have a problem with me with no reason? Jesus doesn't tell us. We can't reconstruct exactly what's gone wrong. That's real life, isn't it? When people fall out. It's hard to untangle who did what. And you think they should make the first move. And they think you should make the first move. And Jesus' point is, you be the one. You be the one to take the initiative and go make peace. Because your priority is to have peace with your brother or sister. And Jesus' second scenario underlines the urgency of this. Prioritize peacemaking and don't risk delay. Back in verse 25. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you won't get away, you won't get out until you have paid the last penny. We easily find reasons to delay peacemaking, don't we? It'd be such hard work. I don't know how they'd respond. I'm just very busy at the moment. Easy to put off peacemaking. But Jesus says, don't. Don't tell yourself, I'll do it tomorrow. And then tomorrow becomes the next day. And the next day becomes the next week. And that becomes the next month. And it goes on and on. You might not manage to fix everything. But don't put it off. Take a step. Even if it's just a phone call. Or asking someone for advice. What should I do? Take a step. Because if we do delay, Jesus warns us, we risk judgment. It's a real warning. And I think what Jesus means is this. Our God is a peacemaking God. We were his enemies, and he gave his son to welcome us into the family. And if we're his children, we'll start to take after him. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the children of God. But if we're not that bothered about peacemaking, if we're relaxed about broken relationships, and we're happy enough putting off making peace, taking our time, then we risk discovering in the end we aren't one of God's peacemaking children after all. Jesus' warning, 
is just the other side of his blessing. Blessed are the peacemakers. Cursed are the peacebreakers. So prioritize peacemaking. Don't delay. Take a step. I'll leave a moment and then lead us in a prayer. Lord Jesus, these are very strong words and we feel the weight of them. And we pray, Lord Jesus, you would, you would do us good through them, that you would help us to know you care and to avoid anger in our hearts, to seek your forgiveness and help and to prioritize peacemaking. We pray you'd make us a church family where we love being at peace with one another and we do what needs to be done without delay to try to make it happen. And we pray in your precious name. Amen.